Good evening. This is the second of the panel discussions on literature and revolution. Uh, we hope you'll be able to hear us without a mic. If you can't, if anybody can't hear, will they gesticulate wildly and we'll try harder. Uh, this evening, uh, it's can a writer be uncommitted? Last time there were many definitions of what was literature, what is literature, and what is revolution. We now are not going to use definitions this evening. Literature, you can think whatever you like is literature and what is revolution. Go home to your dictionaries if you feel unsure. Um, but this evening we are going to discuss can a writer be uncommitted? And we're going to discuss writers mostly of this century and discuss the whole problem of the writer and commitment. Our guests, the panelists are Anthony Burgess on the far right, whose books include The Clockwork Orange. A Clockwork Orange. I beg your pardon, it's got clockwork orange with no E or A. A clockwork orange. <laughs> Enderby and The Eve of St. Uh, Venus. Francine Duplessis Gray, the author of Divine Disobedience, and Jose Kosinski, a novelist th whose latest novel is The Devil Tree. Before, he's written also Steps and Being There. I'm Anne Fremantle, and I'm in the chair. Now, we will start, I think, perhaps with Mr. Burgess. Would you have some statement? Something to say. Well, yes. uh, you don't want uh, any of us to define literature or to define commitment. So I have to, uh, I have nevertheless to state what I think this uh, question means. It means, uh, does the writer of imaginative literature, yes. i.e. the poet or the novelist, uh, because of his peculiar gift, the verbal gift, does he have to be concerned with the program put forward by any particular partisan group in any particular community in order to further a particular ideology? And my answer to that is no, no, and again, no. He only has one commitment, and that is to his art, and in a wider sense, to the spirit of humanity, which again has to be defined, uh, which that art attempts to represent, or even in a sense to further the image of or something like that, to begin with, anyway. Well, that's a very clear statement indeed. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Mrs. Gray, what about you? Um, I'm thinking right now of the 60s in America, which have been uh, a kind of laboratory for commitment. And um, I'd, again, there's a, I think we should define, I, I wish we could define commitment a little bit, because there's a difference between saying yes to a particular party, uh, political party or electoral system or platform, and saying no to a definite, to a particular, particular uh, historic situation so that I think that with the kind of Vietnam crisis we've had in the past decade, I would like to enlarge Mr. Burgess's definition to uh, a kind of, I mean, can we, can we say that the writer can remain only committed to his art at a time of crisis such as we've seen, or could he remain unco uh, uncommitted to anything with his art in Europe in the 30s during the Spanish Civil War, which was to uh, the generation past what Vietnam was to the generation in the 60s? So that I think that um, um, I think we'd like to, I, I would like to hear from uh, uh, the panelists how they define commitment, whether at a time of crisis such as we have been through, or, or the 30s was. Uh, because does it only consist commitment 
of um, being for humanity, or does it also include a duty to um, say no to a historical, to a moment of injustice in history? I think that's very important. There's no objection to defining commitment. Our objections were that only that last time, there was so, a lot of time was spent defining literature and revolution. There's no objection at all to defining commitment. Mr. Kaczynski, what do you think? Well, I'm on the extreme left uh, in terms of the table. And um, <laughs> I think that no matter what a novelist's private life is, and I speak only as a novelist, as long as he writes, he is committed by the very nature of his craft. He's writing not for himself. If he is, that's a different thing. If he writes for a public, any public, if the intent is to reach beyond his own life, somewhere up there, then he is committed. This is the, the very nature, again, of what he as a novelist is doing. Now, I would like to modify it and say that in two instances, I would not see this commitment carried through. One, if his commitment as a novelist is defined for him by a state, police state, if you, will, if you prefer, or if he writes for a specific audience, and in such a case, his commitment would be defined, let's say, in a free market, so-called free market society, by the publisher. In such a way, his commitment would be channeled and narrowed. If he writes to reach anonymous public, then he is committed. Otherwise, he would be doing something else. He wouldn't write. How would you he answer that? Uh, just one minor point. Yeah. Keep in mind that when he writes, he does not know for whom. He does not know whether he's going to be read. He will never know that. The books bought are not necessarily the books read. And so the commitment continues. What's more, unlike politicians and unlike a businessman, he has no way of gauging the impact. And so he has to remain committed to keep on writing. Otherwise, he'll be doing something else. I accept that uh, general notion of commitment if it means that the writer has the responsibility of communicating to uh, a public larger than himself, he himself, of course, a private, uh, and uh, if um, this kind of communication means the clarification of an image of man himself, which his public, or his potential public, may be said to hold in a somewhat inarticulate way in their minds, uh, this is, I suppose, primarily the function of the poet in, uh, I suppose, uh, Walt Whitman's uh, sense of the answerer, uh, the man who answers the questions we all ask and answers them eloquently and with as much clarity as he can possibly find. But could I just look at this in a rather more narrow way, uh, i.e. in terms of commitment to a particular ideology, which is, I think, what the term normally means. We're, we're full these days of uh, words which uh, have lost uh, those elements which would make up an intelligible phrase, uh, thus uh, relevance is a very good example. You know, relevant, I always say relevant to what? You know, why do you, Burgess, why do you write relevant? I always say relevant to what? And so this term commitment does necessarily uh, ask to be followed by the question to what? But uh, let me take a couple of examples from uh, English literature. There was a great poet, uh, John Milton, who uh, knew two kinds of commitment. Uh, indeed, three. The first kind of commitment, which uh, he was not willing, perhaps, to recognize, was a commitment to man as a, as a fleshly 
being uh, a sensorium, creature with emotions. Uh, the second commitment was to man seen in theological terms. His job, as he thought in uh, Paradise Lost, was to justify the ways of God to man using a printer's term. And the third kind of commitment was temporary. Uh, this was a commitment to the uh, police state uh, which Oliver Cromwell had set up. No, it wasn't completely a police state. It was a kind of dictatorship, but it had liberal elements. And uh, Milton spent much of his time not writing poetry. Indeed, a whole swathe of his life in which he lost his eyesight was spent in uh, writing justifications of Cromwell's policies, justifications of Cromwell's usurpation of um, the, uh, the rule of England uh, to uh, Europe, mostly in Latin, answering pamphlets like uh, Icon Basilicae, which sought to, uh, even at that stage, a year or so after the execution of Charles I, try to canonize him uh, with uh, pamphlets like uh, Iconoclastes. Now, this was work he could do well because he was a man of great eloquence, but it was a kind of minor and rather mean commitment because he was not looking to the wider public of man himself, man present and future, but to man in a very circumscribed sector of human society, namely Cromwellian man. Now, it's up to the writer besides what he does. I regret deeply that Milton had to write Paradise Lost as a blind man. I would rather he would have written that with his sight and not, in effect, as it seems now, in terms of literature, wasted his time on polemical work which others could have done quite as well. I feel the same about Jonathan Swift. Swift wrote works which transcend the limitations of uh, early 18th century politics, great works which we remember, but a great deal of his time was spent on pamphleteering uh, for this cause or that, uh, writing uh, works about the debasement of the coinage in uh, Ireland, uh, writing works, admittedly, which made particular local appeals, uh, as the modest proposal, for example, but which, through his greatness, through his tremendous imagination, transcended those limitations. I think that uh, one can modify the original state by saying that a writer can be committed. He can write for a party, he can, he, he can profess a political faith, he can further an ideology, so long as he doesn't confuse this with his major function, which is that of creating art, which doesn't, uh, which doesn't appeal to a sector of society, uh, but to society or man as a whole. What would you say to that? Can the writer not... Uh, can he... I mean, can there or was there ever a writer was uncommitted in the sense that uh, Mr. Burgess has been defining them? I think that, um, I, th I can think of Herman Hesse, who made a point almost of, of, uh, of uh, personal revolution and, and who, who, who felt that the state of the world would come out perfectly if man underwent a personal transformation. Oh, sorry, who? Herman Hesse. Oh, yes. Yes. But I think that we, I think we're involved here in, uh, I think we should define two types of relationships between, uh, between literature and revolution. Um, there are two very clear categories. I mean, there are and often un un uh, overlapping, so not necessarily clear. There are those writers who um, are precursors of political revolution and who have an implicit critique of society in their work. And obviously, we can think of uh, most of the great writers uh, in history uh, 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 Blake and Hardy and Dickens and, uh, and uh, Milton too. They're also the ones who are the products of a certain historical revolution we think of as, as revolutionary because they wrote in revolutionary times, such as Mayakovsky, who, who uh, is perhaps, don't you think, one of the sort of great symbols of a revolutionary thought in our time. What strikes me is that um, 
Mayakovsky's commitment to the revolution, to either a political revolution or a sort of spiritual individual regeneration and, and revolution was not at all as deep uh, as uh, that of men like Tolstoy or Turgenev. I see Mayakovsky as a very self-serving man who really used the revolution for his gifts and uh, who was much less radical and much less revolutionary, although he was much more revolutionary so as, an, as an artist, than um, the uh, quieter men who were great uh, precursors. So I'm, I think there's a kind of a confusion or an irony here that we should, that we should uh, point out and, and argue through that the so-called revolutionary both of products of revolution, such as Pasternak or Mayakovsky, are often less revolutionary and less committed to the revolution than a man like Blake, who, of course, had his uh, peculiar stages, who was in his early life committed to a political revolution and then increasingly went, if I understand him, towards a personal sense of, of revolution. What would you say, Mr. Uh, I was just wondering. Uh, I remember that when, my, when I began seeing myself as a novelist, I, I once applied for a loan in a bank. Uh, the bank could remain re nameless. And I had to chemical, answer a question chemical, what, chemical. what my profession was. And I said, a writer. And the lady in the bank said to me, a writer? Well, Mr. Kozinski, but what do you really do? <laughs> um, and then, yes, exactly. Um, I somehow got out of this. I told her I was a tourist. And it worked. You, she asked me how long I have been in New York, and I said 14 years. I stay longer than in any other place. But then a few weeks ago, I was in Paris, and friends of mine asked me whether I have seen the two distinctly different shrines to authors. One was the Museum of Balzac, and one of Victor Hugo. And I went first to the to the Balzac. Somehow was closer to um, to my life, and I went to see a house in a rather fancy, well, uh, a better part of Paris, very small, tiny house. And there were lo a lot of younger people there, wearing hats and sort of very informally dressed. And there were all sorts of souvenirs pointing out how irresponsible he was, Balzac, in terms of his own life, spending half of his royalties on a walking stick, always in debt, and yet rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, 27, 28, 30 drafts of the same novel, paying a lot of money, the money he needed for walking sticks, for the very drafts of rewriting of the book. And again, the atmosphere was extremely informal. Um, it could almost be a sort of a, well, almost a cafe atmosphere. And then half an hour later, I went to the Victor Hugo house. This was the proletarian part of Paris, but the house, the museum, had eight floors including tree in the basement where the belongings were kept. And everyone there spoke in whispers, and no hats were worn. And I was reprimanded, reprimanded twice when my voice was too loud. And at one point, I said to someone who reprimanded me that I shouldn't talk, I said, why? And he said, Victor Ego lived here. <laughs> the difference is that one of them, somehow, in terms of his bodily existence, was the careless man. And it is assumed that, that his life somehow, perhaps, would cast or did cast a shadow on his commitment. Victor Hugo always committed to every revolution around. Um, and a political man, a member of the parliament at one time or another. And I wonder, is, is there any difference? Forget the walking stick and forget the revolution. 
the commitment was the same on both sides. Balzac is no less part of my life than Victor Hugo. Who cares what his private life was all about? Who cares about the lovers and walking sticks and royalty statements? What was there in both instances was the commitment to the condition, to the condition of men who had to be somehow waken up, dragged out of his nameless, faceless situation. And I think this is, for me, the only commitment worth reflecting upon. Revolutions come and go. Writers somehow remain. If the commitment is only during the time of the revolution, what do we do when there isn't one to be committed to? Do we change the profession, a stockbroker? Um, and I think I can only think again in terms of this reaching to an anonymous, faceless man. Think about if you question that sort of a commitment, then why the first thing a police state does is to silence the writer, regardless of what he writes about, really. If, as long as he doesn't allow the state to define his commitment, he is silenced or imprisoned. Any police state doesn't. Why? Because for some reason that commitment aims at, I'm looking for a phrase, um, well, a, a parliament of unknown men and women who sit somewhere up there and who are to be summoned by the vision of the writer from the daily drag, from giving in, from the bureaucratic vacuum, from the political oppression, if you want to. And this is the commitment. There isn't any other commitment. Whether there is a revolution at the time or not, whether the writer as a citizen pays the dues to a political party or buys a walking stick, that is irrelevant. What is relevant is, does he keep on writing? And does he keep, does he really believe that, that there is a purpose in the fiction and that the purpose is really unknown to reach that very ambiguous mass of people somewhere up there, people he will never meet and he will never encounter? I, I agree with, uh, with everything Yoshi has said. Uh, uh, stated it most eloquently, but, uh, uh, no, not but, but is the wrong conjunction, and uh, I'm now, uh, I now tend to think, you mentioned Blake, uh, think of uh, writers who, uh, poets and novelists, who uh, did um, give out a particular specific uh, revolutionary message. You mentioned William Blake, as I say. Now, Blake, of course, uh, was interested in the French Revolution, and uh, Blake wrote about it. Uh, the curious thing is we forget these prophetic books, in that particular prophetic book about the French Revolution, uh, as something ephemeral, and remember the Songs of Innocence, the Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and uh, various uh, short lyrics, uh, far better than those prophetic books, which had an immediate, when it began, uh, almost political commitment. I'm thinking of uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who uh, lived about the same time, and uh, was much interested in the new theories of Godwin, and especially Godwin's uh, Pantisocratic proposal, that uh, everybody should go away and build an ideal society somewhere. And there's one poem of Coleridge's which commemorates this. It's a poem called uh, To a Young Ass, or Young Donkey, in which the term, uh, I don't think the term Pantisocracy actually occurs, but the sentiments of Pantisocracy occur. There's a poem by Robert Burns called The Tree of Man, which is absolutely pro-revolutionary. Talks about the tree, in, uh, I heard ye the tree of France, uh, around it all the patriots dance and so on. But because of a peculiar um, rhetorical power, the thing lives. We have a habit of ignoring the content and concentrating on the uh, on the rhetorical the power. Uh, I'm thinking of Jared Manley Hopkins, a, a Jesuit priest, uh, most uncommitted to anything one would have thought except God, who wrote a poem called Tom's Garland, Upon the Unemployed. 
which was a vitriolically anti-socialist poem, uh, but just emerges as a, a magnificent rhetorical flight. What I'm really trying to say is that with some poets, uh, the greatness is such that they can't help transcending uh, the immediate issue. Uh, this happens again and again throughout literature. It happened with Swift, as I've already indicated. Uh, it, um, it happened even with that great poem of Andrew Marvell uh, on Cromwell's return from Ireland, which most of us know by heart without liking Cromwell. We know lines like, uh, he nothing common did or mean upon that memorable scene, but with his keener eye the axe's edge did try, nor call the gods with vulgar spite to vindicate his helpless right, but laid his comely head down as upon a bed, uh, Charles I. Uh, we so I must forget it, John the First. It could apply to any man, any martyr, put in that particular position. And moreover, we note that although this is a pro-Cromwellian poem, it has a curious habit of becoming super-Cromwellian and finding virtue in uh, Charles the Martyr, the great enemy. It is the rhetorical force that outlasts the subject matter. This is true of Dickens. We uh, no longer have Yorkshire schools. We no longer have poorhouses of the kind depicted in Oliver Twist. But the essentially human power is such. Here is man. In a particular situation, how does he cope with it? This applies again to uh, a novel uh, like uh, Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year. Now, this is nothing to do with politics, but we're not interested in the plague. We're not interested in the facts of the plague, the death figures, how it came about. Uh, but we are interested in the way a whole nation, a whole people, a whole city, shall I say, manages to cope with a particular situation. This is the important thing. It's the human uh, element the, um, the human residue, uh, which proves to be far bigger uh, than the initial intended statement, uh, which makes for literature and which uh, seems sometimes to justify the choice of a quite ephemeral subject. Any subject, in fact, will do, even a revolution, so long as it produces these rhetorical flights, which by accident almost seem to dig down to the very roots of what humanity is about. This is great. Um, I'm still concerned with, with periods of crisis and how what one does in periods of crisis. I'm still concerned with how one could maintain this rather Parnassian outlook that we're evolving tonight during the French Resistance, for instance, or during the 30s in Germany. I don't understand how it can be done. And so I think we have to make a kind of exception from... I, I mean, I'd like to hear whether Mr. Bridges and Mr. Kaczynski would like to, to make an exception to this sort of Bonassian normalcy that they have set. Uh, four times a crisis. Now, this leads me inevitably to uh, the Camus-Sartre dispute. And what strikes me there is that it was in a way so unnecessary because they're both um, great writers, I think, who were both uh, equally concerned with the, with the human um, uh, quandary, but were just taking different approaches or different, at times, different mediums and also particularly who had different uh, conceptions of the relationship between the self and history. And I remember in that rebuttal uh, that Sartre wrote to Camus' complaint about Janssen's critique of the rebel in, in the temps moderne, um, Sartre quoted a, a letter of uh, Sartre's, uh, Sartre quoted a letter of Camus which had particularly shocked him, the following sentence, we entered history and for five years we did not hear the birds sing referring to uh, Camus' rather uh, resentful uh, engagement, or as if he really, really saw a tension between himself and history, and a tension between contemplation, the artist's contemplation, and political duty. And 
uh, what Sartre was really attacking Camus on was for making that distinction between the self and history and between contemplation and duty and be between art and political engagement. It seems to me that, uh, um, that the, the dispute was, was rather pathetic because it revolved on preconceived definitions which they didn't really explore and they explored rather petty outward signs of their dispute. Uh, I just want to say that I feel that that, uh, um, that this, this tension between contemplation and duty is something which the artist, uh, if he has a capacity for com commitment, will always feel at times historical crises. Um, and um, I think it's significant that in the 60s, uh, writers were extraordinarily good, at least from my point of view, from my liberal point of view, on the Vietnam War issue, that many poets went to jail, that many writers did that kind of witness, and it didn't seem, uh, uh, it seemed fitting that they did, so that I would like to bring crisis into, or exception into this discussion in this way. Could we broaden that a little bit? I agree that that's a very, I mean, that's an important idea, but could we broaden it and ask uh, <coughs> these two Parnassian gentlemen um, whether the writer can help himself? I mean, whether Shelley could have not uh, being a revolutionary at that moment when he was dropping pamphlets in Ireland, whether whether it's possible, I mean, whether the writer can, by his nature, avoid the commitment in certain situations, um, such as, as stress or... No, such he, he, he cannot avoid it uh, any more than any other sensitive individual can. Uh, the, the fact that the writer has a particular vocation is is not really relevant. But uh, looking at Shelley's own position, uh, I've read Shelley, I've read the works that uh, very few people have read. I was greatly devoted to Shelley as a young man, and I read a poem which I think very few people here have read called Queen Mab, uh, one of his earliest poems. And I think a very bad poem, uh, full of, uh, with notes at the end uh, on the lines of the wasteland, only much more extensive and rather less interesting, in which uh, Shelley has a stab at everything, including marriage, uh, meat-eating, uh, the House of Lords, and uh, by implication, uh, voices the uh, revolutionary notions that any young uh, Etonian or any young expelled Etonian might be expected to hold in those days. Uh, we don't read this poem, but we do, unfortunately, read poems on the, like the Ode to the Skylark and, uh, and uh, the Epipsychidion and the like. But again, you see, this comes, uh, you, you, we remember two lines from Shelley. I met a death upon the way. He had a mask like Castlereagh. Uh, very few people remember who Castlereagh was, and we have to make a deliberate effort to read history to find out what he did and why Shelley hated him so much. But this is not quite the point again. The term Castlereagh, like any of the names that uh, Blake gives us in the prophetic books, is a mere counter for a particular force. Nobody knows where, where Blake got the name any farm on uh, loss uh, or reason and the rest of it in the prophetic books from. Uh, they, they have a force. Uh, a name has a peculiar force uh, in a particular context because it seems to relate to a particular individual force located in time and history. Uh, this is the thrill we get from reading a name of any kind. If you read those lines, that line of Blake, I think it's in Jerusalem, isn't it? Uh, Go thou to Schofield. Ask him whether he is Bath or Canterbury. Uh, Schofield, the name hits. One feels a shudder down the spine when one reads the name. 
even though one is not quite sure what the sentence means. It means, in fact, go thou to this inimical force which is located in history and ask him whether he belongs to the forces of Rome, Bath, or the forces of Christianity, Canterbury. But Schofield happened to be one of the soldiers uh, with whom uh, Blake had a tussle outside his house in Lambeth. And the name stuck in his mind, just as the name of uh, the, um, the Viceroy in uh, Zurich stuck in Joyce's mind and emerged as the master, uh, the master hangman Rumbold in Ulysses. Uh, I'm trying to say, I'm really repeating myself, I'm really giving you examples of the manner in which uh, these things suddenly transcend uh, the immediate situation, even though this is not the intention of the writer. Now, you talk about, you talk about crises. Yes, we, uh, writers are equipped to deal with crises, and some of the greatest writing of all time has dealt with a particular emotional uh, uprush that comes from a particular crisis, whatever the nature of the crisis is, whether it's a flood or an earthquake or a political revolution. Now, the difference between Camus and, um, and Sartre was surely this, that quite apart from the fact that Camus was by far the greater writer, uh, Camus was not innocent and Sartre was innocent. Uh, Sartre was an innocent man and remains an innocent man. He believes that the answers to certain human problems do lie in political shibboleths. He discovered evil for the first time during the Vichy regime. He'd been a schoolmaster earlier and did not presumably find evil in the fact that a boy would tear the wings off a fly. But evil came to him through political means. It was, uh, it was dumped upon him with a ton weight uh, when people went to concentration camps and so on during the Vichy regime. And then he came out with a statement, evil uh, cannot be redeemed. A statement that had been made many centuries previously by the church fathers. Camus knew this, never questioned it. Uh, when Camus took it upon himself to write a novel, La Peste, in which the particular situation that Algeria found herself in, the particular situation that Europe found herself in, had to be presented symbolically or allegorically, again, the situation is a universal one. It transcends a particular time. This is how people will, work, will behave in a particular situation of crisis and to help with the nature of the crisis. People who read La Peste now have probably forgotten what it's all about, uh, what instigated Camus to write it. But they don't forget the human response to a crisis of any kind. So revolution is there probably for the artist's benefit. Uh, he is not there for the revolution's benefit. Let, let's be, let this be carried on by other people better qualified to do it, because every artist knows that no revolution does any good, that human beings remain the same and don't suddenly change. This is the, this is the innocence that Sartre still holds, the innocence which enables him to say that the greatest American novelist was John Dos Passos. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell uh, reaction to Mr. Burgess's foreign accent. Um, <laughs> and since I, have, since I have heard Mr. Burgess before, and I knew, I knew he was going to talk about Cromwell <laughs> and others, let me tell you about Anthony Burgess. Oh. <laughs> Quote. He's a committed writer, you know, but he doesn't like to say it. And here's the quote. I have become so used to my unconscious mind dictating not only the themes of my novels, but also the names and symbols that I regard myself as a mere hen, not oviparous. But the novels are probably all about the same thing. Man as a sinner, but not sufficiently a sinner to deserve the calamities that I heaped upon him. I suppose I try to make comic novels about men's tragic lot. 
this is Anthony Burgess, and forget Cromwell. Did I, did I, when, when did I say that? The difference between the two of us is not only your foreign accent, but uh, <laughs> it, that, that I, with my police state background behind me, I check with whom I'm going to sit at the same table. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, no, wait, wait, yeah, wait, yeah, wait, wait, so, wait. And so, wait. as you can see, this is an innocent man. He doesn't even know when and where did he say that. <laughs> you know that, Comrade Burgess? Or you still can recall it? I don't remember, no. I, I think it's probably true, but I don't remember. That was, oh, off, that was obviously from the unconscious. Uh, <laughs> but this is, this is the revolutionary predicament. Man is a sinner, and to get him out from the situation in which he's either giving in and he's absolutely helpless, or can be rearmed. This is the crisis which is constant. It knows no Cromwell and no Blake, and indeed it can do without Saab and few other strangers. It's everywhere. And this is exactly the, the predicament to which I think all of us are addressing ourselves, since we see ourselves as sinners as well, and we also feel that the calamities, the calamities which somehow we have to face are not the ones we deserve. This is the true commitment. The commitment is to rescue our, our own situation somehow, to say to yourself, uh, as long as you are aware of what is happening to you, your life will be better and somehow others around you can benefit by it. You will connect. You will notice yourself as others and others as part of your own situation. And that's what Anthony Burgess is all about, not all the things he has said. And well, more, well those, those two, those two. Uh, all right, yeah. those two. But I think this is the underlying commitment. The commitment, again, I check, I check your biography very carefully, Mr. Burgess. Mm. Uh, you don't write on a contract. You are not contracted ahead of time to address a specific audience, to narrow your commitment, you address yourself to this abstract sinner, which is you, but which is also mm. all of you here. Yes, and yes. that is what makes you a committed writer. Nothing else. And I think this is the profoundly important thing. But of course, you are a foreigner. Well, I, I'd accept that notion of committedness, yes, all the way, yes, I'd accept it. There's nothing to do with politics, though, is it? No, but don't you think the question which, which neither of you have answered is whether, you can, whether the writer can do without the revolution? I mean, you've, you've said that the revolution helps the writer and is, is good for him, so to speak. Well, if I may say this, you see, most of my fellow writers in England have had to live without a revolution since uh, 1688. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, their, it's their misfortune, and that is why we uh, have always felt very humble in the presence of, of Yeji and, of course, in the presence of, uh, of writers uh, uh, like uh, Arthur Kirstler, you know, who brought with him the whiff of the concentration camp, whereas we could merely imagine it. This is not altogether our fault. Uh, it's only by an act of extreme uh, imaginative uh, penetration that a writer like George Orwell could, uh, uh, could present us with an image of um, a possible future England, or even a present-day England, in which the intellectuals who write for the New Statesman had, had taken over, taken over Broadcasting House and the pubs nearby. Uh, yes, yes, we, we have to do with our revolutions. Uh, many writers have to, uh, have to write uh, out of the dullness of their lives. I think this is what, in a, a, a poem that uh, W.H. Auden wrote uh, about the novelist, he ended by saying, and suffer dully all the wrongs of man, not with the uh, robed fire of the poet, but the wrongs that go on all the time. 
Uh, the sort of wrongs that um, Turgenev, after all, dealt with. The sportsman's uh, notebook was not a revolutionary work, although it had the effect of uh, interesting the Tsar at the time and perhaps helping to promote a revolutionary spirit. But it was about people as they were, the dull wrongs that suffered dully in the, uh, in the novelist's prose. And this is what most of us are concerned with all the time. A revolution, in a sense, is a great luxury. Uh, that is perhaps why uh, many American writers who are living through a kind of revolution at the present time are envied by us, and it's probably one reason why I also, yes, I'm, I'm now a foreigner, although I, sp I, I still speak with a, a native accent, I'm now a foreigner, I'm an exile, I no longer live in England, because I possibly am the sort of writer who needs the impact of the crisis before he can write. Whereas a lot of people in England are just left with suburban adultery uh, and the welfare state and uh, perpetual themes like that. They're in the Jane Austen position, except she didn't write about suburban adultery. The Napoleonic War was going on in the background there, the French Revolution had taken place, but she was still uh, writing about country vicarages and still probably saying far more about the nature of the human condition uh, than many of the big committed people whom we hear so little about nowadays. Um, it strikes me that, that some writers do and can remain uncommitted. I'm, I'm trying to think right now, uh, I'm thinking right now of, of, of Updike and of his last book, and which at times sort of tries to sum up the 60s in America and, and his feelings about it. I find it's absolutely, it's blatant in its uncommitment and perhaps extraordinarily impoverished by it. When he touches on his emotions, on accompanying friends on a civil rights march back in the early 60s or whatever, I find it's, it's so empty and so confused that I, I really feel that certain writers can and do remain uncommitted, but perhaps, particularly if they are living in a time of crisis, their work can suffer deeply. And um, so I think I would, you know, perhaps uh, hear from Mr. Burgess what he thinks of, of, of like development in the past years as, as a man who really is still writing about nothing but suburban adultery. I'm not. I'm, I'm no, 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 I mean, oh, Updike. Oh, Updike, oh, up oh, yes, yes all the way, no. Yes, all the way. You never. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, uh, <laughs> the time may come. Uh, um, but Updike has been writing about that and has kept on writing about that through a time of intense crisis. And I think mm. it, it shows, it's, it's a perfect example of a writer, an American writer, who has remained uncommitted. Mm. Well, I think the time has probably come, as not yet, you to, to say a little about, not merely about content, but about style. That there is such a thing as a revolutionary style and uh, such a thing as a non-revolutionary style. And uh, Mr. Updike is a very good example of the non-revolutionary stylist. Although he acknowledges an indebtedness to Nabokov and uh, uses words prettily, uh, the rhythms are flaccid. The rhythms are very, very flaccid. This is where Updike falls down. And uh, although a man like Orwell does not write prettily, far from it, uh, the rhythms are not flaccid. Uh, there's a sense in which the poignancy, the urgency of a particular situation uh, can do something to the prose style. Uh, I don't think that Dean Swift would have written in the way he did this tremendously lucid style, uh, again with a huge thrust in it, which uh, Orwell so admired, admired more than any uh, other writer's writing. Uh, this did, did derive from the cut and thrust of polemical engagement, uh, from the awareness of immediate crises, uh, the sense that you couldn't sit down for a long time and deliberate, as Joyce did and as Flaubert did, uh, over a single word, whether it was the right word or not, the more just, or as Oscar Wilde said to have done, spend afternoon deciding whether you should have a comma here or a semicolon. Now, this is, uh, I'm not putting this forward as uh, necessarily my own belief, but I think it's something we might legitimately discuss. That, that, that uh, what, what I suppose we, we look for eventually is not the revolutionary content, but so much as the influence of revolution or crisis on the way a man writes, as opposed to the content, and that uh, this is uh, something that uh, not merely helps the writer, but can uh, perhaps glorify him. 
I think it's an interesting question to, to go into is perhaps can a writer have a revolutionary style uh, without being particularly touched by the political-historical situation around him? Can you think of examples? Mainly with a revolutionary style. Yes. Now, uh, of course, we haven't really defined the term, but uh, to me, it, uh, it seems, to, uh, seems to suggest a, a style laden with urgency uh, in which there is none of the uh, otios, uh, uh, magniloquence, grandiloquence, uh, of a writer, say, like uh, John Ruskin, although, of course, in some ways, Ruskin may be called a revolutionary, or a writer, for that matter, like Walter Pater, or shall we say even, and uh, this is bust me, a writer like James Joyce, certainly a writer like Updike, or even a writer like Nabokov, a very anti-revolutionary writer, a writer who turns his back on the revolution. It's just that in certain writers, uh, Shaw is one, I think Wells, the earlier Wells was another, Swift is certainly another, there is a sense that things have to be done quickly, uh, that things have to be set down rapidly, uh, as rapidly as is consistent with writing lucidly and well, and that there's a kind of quality in this writing uh, that cannot be found at any other period in history. It's found in Tom Paine, I think. This, uh, Tom Paine was a marvellous stylist. I don't think any Americans read him anymore, but he was a marvellous stylist. Uh, there's a sense of this urgency, this elegant urgency, even in that great prose work, uh, that great work of fiction, uh, The Declaration of Independence. Uh, it, it's a quality uh, we find uh, when the writer is alert, is alert, is not uh, slippered, surrounded by his books and has all the time in the world to write his novel. It is not found, I think, in Flaubert at all, uh, despite the revolutionary impact of a novel like Madame Bovary. But it is found, I think, in the, in the fiction of uh, Yeji here, at least I've, I've, I've noted it there, rightly or wrongly, and it, it is found in the writing of, um, of Norman Mailer, who, again, is, can be a rather padded writer at times, but uh, the thrust is there, the urgency of whatever he's writing about, and it is certainly not found in the writing of John Updike. It is there in the writing of Philip Roth, uh, the impact of crisis. Uh, but it is not there in Updike at all. And this, I think, is the, um, the largest uh, possible accusation uh, one can lay against Updike as a writer, the fact that there's no urgency there, there's no thrust. Thrust may, as I say, come from crisis or the sense of crisis. And would you agree that Updike, that speaks that someone like Updike is an uncommitted writer? I would love it because he didn't like my work. <laughs> <laughs> but I can. I can. I can see, I'm sorry, but I can see style as a revolutionary or counter-revolutionary device. It is the content, not the style. What about the work in translation? Does it lose its revolutionary impact if it's translated? It loses its original style? Let me give you an example. Um, in terms of my generation, let's say, uh, growing up after the Second World War and in the Soviet Union, the most revolutionary writer we could think of, and indeed the most revolutionary American writer we all read, was Jack London. I know. He's not revolutionary to you. He was to us. He was to us, to all of us, and if you look at the official statistics of the Soviet Union, you will see that since, the, since 1917, over 65 million copies of Jack London are in print far more than any other writer, far more than any other American writer. Why? For a very simple reason. If you look at any protagonist of Jack London, he's alone, he has to be aware of his own life, the others don't really matter, it is his own life which is at stake, and this is exactly how we saw ourselves 
in what was, during the Stalinist period, undoubtedly a totalitarian state. Jack London and Fenimore Cooper, none of my students at Yale ever heard of Fenimore Cooper. <laughs> uh, Fenimore Cooper, how do you spell it? Um, these were revolutionary writers because of the content matter, the stress on the individual, the stress of, on one very basic aspect of one's life, that you are what you feel you are, not what others make you to be. That you need strength from within to resist the pressures from without because the pressures from without are not important. What's more, they can turn you against other people who are very much like you yourself. And so Jack London, with all his awful style, far worse than, than John Updike, even though I make no judgment on John Updike, uh, Jack London emerged for us as a revolutionary writer, and he has been. And so I still think it's the content. I think if for, it's easy to pass judgment on you, on me, on, on Updike, and on Jack London, but we don't really know what we do to, to those who read us. We can only guess. If we are read, and one has to assume we are, then we can only hope there is an impact. And if there is an impact, it is a revolutionary impact. Adultery in Ipswich, isn't this where he lives, Updike? That is a revolutionary device. It pulls the man out of the confinement of his, of, or of his own life, and it says to him, do something different. Wake up. Don't die. Commit adultery. That's the ultimate revolution you can afford in, in upper regions of Massachusetts. Um, um, I think the, the, the addressing yourself to the, to the deadening condition to which we are all subject, this is the revolutionary intent of a novelist. And I don't care how he goes about it. John Updike or Jack London's way, or for that matter, Burgess's way, or Kosinski's way, or Gray's way, or any other way. But Jesse, but that use of the word revolution is so stretched that it's, it's, it's like the uh, application of the word revolution to cake mixes and uh, mouthwashes. It's, it's not been stretched, so it's grounded. It's grounded in the life of an individual. It is stretched when you speak about the revolution on a continent. It means absolutely nothing. I'm a child of the revolution. What does it mean? I, I, I present that, that, that very loose use of the word, which has been applied to, uh, to you know, to, to uh, frozen food. To frozen food, I mean, revolutionary frozen, you know, snow peas. It's, 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 uh, I think it, 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 rather, it, it rather weakens uh, a good old-fashioned word. And I, 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 would, I, I wish there would be another word that you could, that you could uh, use as his own illumination or his own personal uh, uh, battle. But, but I think revolution in... As, as applied to adultery in Ipswich, is a very, very kind of depressing idea. <laughs> it may be depressing, but that's the only revolution we can afford right now. I can't think of any other um, um, word for it. I think revolutionary simply meaning pulling out the dead body back to life. That can be very revolutionary. Uh, let me, let me, may I say this, that uh, there's something rather bizarre, uh, but at the same time typical, about the fact that uh, we here in, uh, in New York uh, mostly Americans are, are, are discussing revolution uh, uh, with, uh, with a kind, there's a kind of deleity somewhere here. I uh, almost said nostalgia, but that's not true. Uh, what you call a revolution, of course, was really a rebellion. The, uh, the fact is that America will never have a revolution. America is far too well fed, even at its lowest levels. Uh, America is far too stable, besides, despite the evidence uh, of instability. Uh, I have the feeling there's a kind of, um, and this is probably true of Mrs. Gray too, you know, if I may say this, you're playing around with the idea of revolution or something happening out there, which is rather a pleasant idea, uh, that when one is actually involved in some momentous change, 
revolution. It may not just be a political revolution, it may be a war. Uh, one's feelings often become uh, quite different. Uh, the desire to be a revolutionary, the desire to write a revolutionary book, is not this a common property of, uh, of settled societies. Uh, but um, see what happened when uh, a kind of revolution broke out in England in uh, 1914. It was a revolution. It was a change. Everything changed overnight. The whole solid stratified class system suddenly changed. Uh, England suddenly found that she was uh, weaker than she had originally thought. And uh, the poets spoke and the pamphleteers wrote and then came along in, I think it was 1917, uh, the, the love song of uh, J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot, which had nothing to do with the war at all, which was solely concerned with uh, a very timid Bostonian, rather like Eliot himself. And this uh, was the revolution uh, on one level. It was not the political revolution. It was not the great crisis of nations. Uh, but this was a kind of revolution. It was a new way of looking at things. It meant the sudden jolt uh, which a social revolution had brought about, was bringing about all over Europe, had jolted people out of a way of thinking which was expressed in a particular form of words. And uh, this kind of writing is as much a product, shall I say, of a revolution, although there's no reference to it in it, uh, as would be um, the kind of pamphlet which urged my father and mother to, uh, to uh, kill German babies or to regard the Kaiser as, uh, as genuinely the devil incarnate. But, uh, if I may throw this, uh, are we not really getting at two things? Uh, we're, we're getting at two kinds of writing. Uh, we're, getting at two, two we're getting at that kind of static writing, which is merely concerned with evoking an emotion uh, or an emotional complex in the reader, and then, as it were, allowing this complex uh, to uh, tranquilize itself through the rhythm of the writing, this kind of static writing, and the other didactic kind of writing, which our sole aim is to move people into a particular kind of action kind of writing which is not really far distant from pornography, although they're at opposite ends of the spectrum, because pornography too uh, recommends that you use the book in one hand and do something else with the other. With the other hand? <laughs> One-handled literature, of course. <laughs> well, didactic literature is also one-handed. You're supposed to hold it in one hand here and read it and then, then start knocking on doors with the other. This is a French uh, summation, not a British one. <laughs> Mrs. Gray, um, I'd like to, to just touch once more. I'd, I'd like to bury Salt, but you might, you might enjoy that. Um, oh, no. I'd like to bury Salt with, because uh, I think this is well in two, with his um, memory of his, his criticism of Baudelaire. He tried to prove that Baudelaire's poetry was no good at all because Baudelaire never took a, a real parti pris in the political dispute of his time. And I think that, uh, I think that would innocence, I never thought of it for some, I think it's very good. That, that it's really a very innocent um, uh, way to approach Baudelaire. And I think we get back to the root of our discussion here by noting that perhaps Baudelaire's uh, very profound compassion for, for the wretched and for the wretched of the earth and for, for the downtrodden is really much more revolutionary than any possible expression of sentiment for any uh, uh, political party or group of his time. Do you agree? Yes, I, I agree, but... Uh, uh, and th this yes. is very Sartre as a, as a critic of, of that kind of... Uh, yes, but, but uh, yes, I agree with you, but I, I think there's a danger here of our supposing that uh, a writer can be a great revolutionary writer uh, if he, as it were, impels his readers 
by, um, by some didactic or quasi-didactic means to do something about changing their lives or the lives of, uh, of others about them, uh, I don't think it's the job of the poet or the novelist to do this. I would say it's the job of both to show what human uh, life is probably like when stripped of all the journalistic verbiage and the politician's verbiage. Life is like this, now what the hell are you going to do about it? This, I think, is a legitimate job for the novelist, but to force the reader's hand into taking a particular line, and this is usually a political line, I think is totally illegitimate and uh, makes the artist cease to be an artist and become a mere practitioner of didactic writing. This is what I'm scared of. This is all the time what I'm scared of. I've been asked this, not at this meeting particularly, but nobody's asked anything yet, but at other meetings I've been asked the same question. Why don't you do something? Why don't you use your typewriter and do something for the cause? So what cause? Well, the drug cause. I mean, make marijuana cheaper or make it free. Or, uh, or uh, about uh, abortion or, or, or about uh, free contraception in universities and so on. Use your gift for this. And one always has to say no, and one is immediately dubbed a reactionary. One is not being a reactionary at all. One recognizes that these issues uh, are ephemeral issues. They will come right in time. It is not the job of a particular kind of writer to uh, take them in hand. It is the job of the polemical writer. And the artist can be a polemical writer in his spare time if he wishes to be. But it's rather a waste of his time. If somebody asked me, if somebody commissioned me now to, uh, as I was commissioned, uh, well, that's another story, but uh, somebody commissioned me to write a lampoon uh, in heroic couplets on your president, uh, I would willingly do this. <laughs> I was asked uh, a few years ago to write a poem for the New York Times. I was living in Malta and was sent a cable by the New York Times asking for a poem on the moon landing, on the, on the first... Uh, manned moon landing and uh, as an afterthought it was said you better write two poems in case the landing doesn't come off <laughs> um, well this again is a, legitima a legitimate thing you can do uh, but the when the moon landing is over and the excitement has died down and the particular uh, aura of feeling surrounding it which you yourself have capitalized on has died uh, then the work has no uh, further meaning unless one is a very great artist uh, such as Andrew Marvell no, I just asked Mr. Mantle whether we have a discussion. Maybe we should well, try to wait. I'd, I'd, I'd like somebody to answer that, because at least I'd like to ask a question myself. Wouldn't you say that some writers, like Sartre, is, are only good writers when they are polemical? I mean, the best thing Sartre ever did was the Massard, perhaps. Don't you think? I mean, some of the play. The Naissance d'un Chef. Well, and, and that wonderful, uh, the, the wonderful story about the war, the, 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 about the resistance by, you know, being killed. It seems to me, I don't know, I'm just asking whether Mr. Burgess would think South was valid at all, except when, when utterly politically committed. Well, there was a time when one thought that Sartre was valid as a novelist. I think Nausée is, is, uh, is still a remarkably, uh, remarkably telling novel, even though it was originally written when, about 1937, 38? Uh, the, I think it's probably because of um, something taking over Sartre, which Sartre probably didn't expect, namely the, the Rocantin and, and the chestnut tree, and uh, the nausea he feels in the presence of all this, all this yang running over. But well, this has nothing to do with politics. Uh, the, the novels that uh, Sartre wrote, which uh, I think have been uh, dramatized by the BBC on television and uh, presently or have recently been shown on uh, American television, uh, are good examples of novels that don't really live uh, because this, they can be seen solely in terms of the atmosphere uh, which um, prevailed in France at a particular period which is now past. Uh, Sartre is a very considerable philosopher, a very considerable aesthetician, 
uh, but um, is shown to be a very considerable, inconsiderable novelist and playwright because we don't want these things anymore. Although on the other hand, we do want Camus because we feel that he wrote about the permanences of the human condition. Sartre is essentially a polemicist and a very one-sided polemicist, a Marxist polemicist. Would you agree? Uh, I was passed. <laughs> I'd like to ask what kind of what kind of aesthetic. Um, analysis you would make uh, of that writing which fails precisely because, because it is propagandist, let's say uh, 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 Soviet socialist realism. What kind of aesthetic uh, process occurs in your mind? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think an aesthetic is involved as it is in the, uh, in the writing of much uh, Soviet literature. Uh, the, uh, the only test is whether it is, uh, is uh, a valid party statement or um, helps the people forward within the circumscribed limits imposed by the party. Uh, most, uh, uh, Vladimir Nabokov has said there is no Soviet literature, uh, and I'm inclined to agree with him. I'm even uh, inclined to say, and this is heresy, that uh, uh, a writer like um, Solzhenitsyn, uh, Solzhenitsyn is, um, is praised, uh, present by people uh, who often have not read him. I doubt if uh, many people in this room have read the whole of August 1914. Because he just happens to be a great man in apparently an impossible situation, we're, we're all prone to falsify uh, potentially aesthetic judgments uh, by relating the writer uh, to the times he's living in or the society in which he's living. Uh, I don't think it is at all possible to write a great work of art, except by accident, and accidents are possible, uh, when one is committed to a particular partisan point of view. I think one can be apodictic, one can be almost dogmatic about this. That it is impossible because in doing this, you are presenting only one side of man. You are precluding the possibility of opposition. This is why when we read the uh, novels of H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, the later novels especially, we're bored uh, because the, um, the kind of character represented in uh, Meanwhile or the New Machiavelli or the later, much more propagandist novels is already a dead property. It no longer applies to our own age. Whereas we go on reading with relish the, uh, the scientific romances, uh, novels like uh, Mr. Polly and Kipps, because these deal with the permanences. Uh, it's, a simple, it's a simple point I'm trying to make, that once you're committed uh, to a party view, uh, you're incapable of seeing the other side. You're not allowed to. Once you see the other side, the whole position collapses, and you become merely a writer and not a partisan writer. But how about Milton under Cromwell? Well, Milton under Cromwell uh, was uh, not writing partisan literature, he was writing partisan pamphlets. Uh, the non-partisan literature, if you can call the uh, Christian point of view, uh, a non-party attitude to life, uh, is to be found, in, of course, in Paradise Lost, uh, which is the work we want to remember him by, like Comus and the, um, some of the sonnets. Uh, all this wealth of uh, work that he produced during the Cromwellian regime is, did, its, uh, did its job at the time. Uh, it was mostly written in Latin anyway, and uh, is no longer of any value. What I'm trying to say, this is the distinction we have to make between this and this. long conversations about what socialism is going to do about arch uh, agriculture. Uh, about ten minutes of one sequence is taken up with a discussion about what the socialist government is going to do. Uh, another example, a play of his called The Linden Tree, written uh, during the... the uh, uh, that great dawn of post-war socialism, bliss what is in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven, to be old was very heaven. 
the linden tree, in which uh, a long discussion about how nice things are under socialism. I went into the bookshop this morning, says the professor, and I had a hell of a row with a young man behind the counter because the new edition was not in. But he had a hell of a row back with me. That's what I like about socialism. And you'll listen to all this now, if you'll see the play at all or read it. And say, well, it was all right for the time, but it's no longer right now. You have to distinguish, and this is the writer's perpetual job, between what is relevant for the time and what is permanently relevant. And that's what I have to say for now. Well, shall we take a break now, and then we'll have questions addressed to each of the panelists, I think. They, get, they deserve a, all our thanks. They deserve a few minutes rest. And, and, uh, and, and a clock. Yes, we need to Some Queen Anne's tea, as you call it. Do you want a cigarette? I'm supposed to have stopped. It's terrible. It's very, very difficult. Can I get you some water? You, you can have some water. No, I wish it was oh, something you else. Can't, you can't stop me. Just stretch my limbs. Can we ever get a drink in here? No, we can't. Hmm? No, Mr. Bridges is dying for a drink. Oh, I'll get a drink after this. No, it's just, it's just that I'm getting low. Would be nice, beer. Yes. Oh, oh, that's right. I'll bring my flask. It's a pot of milk. Gin flask. It makes a
was very much a revolutionary. I mean, that he was, and that his own guilt, being an Algerian, yeah, goes was, through it a, very, very much. He was a perpetual revolutionary. He was a perpetual revolutionary. He was always presenting a revolutionary thesis. Yeah. It didn't really matter when he was writing. But that, that's why he's probably a great novelist and a great writer. But people were just, you know, uh, La Peste. I don't really read it recently, but uh, is, is any time? Is any time at all? Any very, time. I don't know, it had, uh, of course. It's not just the, you know, the Germans or the Vichy. You don't think it was the German? I mean, it could be Vichy, but it could be. Any time. And I think, I think that... Uh, I what do you think about Marlowe? Uh, well, Marlowe was very committed, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, I think in spite of this commitment, I think he's a very great writer. I think, oh, I think well, he has written pretty much. Yeah, I think that's what he's doing there. Uh, I think he's a great novel of Rhythm. I think he's a strong one. That's a lot. That's a lot. He's fighting himself. Not a comic, of course. No. Any more than Brexit? No. People think they haven't talked. Shall we start again? Shall we have questions? I should very much like to meet Mr. Burgess, if I may. How are you, ma'am? Well, Kaufman, a great admirer. Oh, thank you very much. And I have a question to ask. Do you know Russian? Is that one of your languages? I used to teach, I used to teach Russian, but I, I, I don't know. My wife is the Russian expert. I don't know much about Russian. I tried the experiment of combining the two languages. Speaking Russian, a little bit. Mm -hmm. I have all my work, my wife's Italian, all my work is cut out speaking Italian and speaking all the other languages. But you have evolved, and you Russo English. Well, kind of. Well, which kind uh, of neutral, which is taken. Kind of neutral. It's taken hold. Oh, well, it's some extent. It's one can do it with other languages. You can do it with Hebrew. Write a new gospel in a, in a kind of Anglo Hebrew. But Russian is a very good language for lending it to English, but it's rather like it has varied endings. That's true, yes, I had has, uh, stumbled upon that discovery. It has a continental cluster to all these things. And uh, kind of the French, I think it's done in 1066. No endings. Uh, you had great fun doing that, didn't you? No time, yes. You can't do it with Germans, because Germans are already English. Mm -hmm. yeah. You can do it with yeah. Russian. You can't do it with Chinese. Do you know Chinese too? Oh, I used to live in the Far East. I, I used to live in Malaya. And I, uh, Malay, Malay is where my born. So I, I, I knew some Mandarin as well, but we had to know it. But again, I've got this. I don't keep them up. What is the language you think in primarily or yeah, dreaming? Well, at home, I was well, living in Rome. I normally think in Italian, but I, uh, I think yeah. it. I think it's it. It's a great pleasure to shake your hands. My pleasure to meet you, Miss Carpenter. Thank a really you. great pleasure. Or should we? Uh, uh, I'm all right. I, I, I just feel that we're, uh, we want to hear something from these people. Shall we get seated again and have questions? He wants to
gentlemen who are revolutionary now in Russia are not the two who visited the tennis club the other day, and who are secretaries of a writer's union, but Mr. Brodsky can introduce you again to the tennis club, for example. Mr. Kosinski, excuse me. Could, uh, excuse me. Could, uh, Mr. Kosinski wants to answer that. Will Mr. Kosinski wants to answer that, lady. Yes. All right. Uh, as, a, as a free mix, I'm going to answer that. Um, I think the, the example of of, uh, of Pasternak, it's a, it's a good example in many ways. For one thing, to make the revolution, any kind of revolution, you, you need people who know what, what they want to make. Uh, do they want to participate or not? In other words, the state of awareness of, of a potential revolutionary is something which comes before the revolution. Otherwise, you have a sheep of people who don't know what they are doing. Uh, Pasternak's, Pasternak's predicament is a good one. And I'm glad that, that you brought it up. Um, I happen to have in my folder I, I came prepared not only on, on, on Burgess, on Pasternak as well, uh, a, a statement from the letter to Pasternak, which expelled him from the Writers' Union, and which actually put him all together into the area of silence. And it's a very short quote. And let me read it to you in English translation. What are, what were the basic objections of the one, two, three, four, five Soviet writers who took the side of the state the commitment as defined by the state against Pasternak. And here's the quote. Uh, quote, Zhvago is not merely a doctor, he's a poet. And to, con to convince the reader that his poetry has true significance for mankind, which is how he understands it himself, you, meaning Pasternak, you end your novel with a collection of your hero's poetry. In doing so, you sacrifice the better part of your own poetic talent to this character you have created. Uh, watch carefully. The writer is being expelled from the writer's union and silenced simply because he feels that to recreate his own predicament on the part of his literary protagonist, he has to commit part of his own self to this character. Only then the character will be meaningful. Since Pasternak happened to be a poet, Zhvago happens to be a poet also. And so Pasternak gives Zhvago poetic talent. The fact of that identity between the writer himself and his, and his literary protagonist was enough to silence Pasternak until he had died. Uh, this is precisely the threat which the writer's imagination poses to any police state, not only the Soviet Union. Uh, the very fact that you may retrieve that you may reclaim through love, through any other devices, some dead souls, Zhvagos or anybody else. And whenever this happens, and whenever there is an obvious connection between the writer who wants to do it, then of course he has to be silenced. That voice addressed to no one specific, to no one in particular, is the most dangerous voice a police state is afraid of. Uh, and so Pasternak himself, a non-committed man, indeed a poet, a poet, um, many of you probably know, who managed to translate all of Shakespeare into Russian, simply because at the time he couldn't do anything else. And so he was simply translating Shakespeare. Uh, his, own, his own private involvement 
perhaps Lamour de Passion, but that's just about all. But is he an uncommitted writer? As uncommitted as he was in person, he was still as silent as any political criminal could possibly be. Isn't this the act of ultimate recognition? That no matter how uncommitted the writer as a citizen he is, he is very committed as a writer. Um, would Mrs. Yeah. Gray also answer? Yes, well, I think, I think Jesse is, is absolutely correct, and I think it's even more striking in the case of the Russian poets. Because if you read Akhmatova and Svetlayeva, not even to speak of Mandelstam, but if you, uh, Mandelstam had, had many more, I think, covert uh, references to Stalin than did Ahmadov and Svetlayeva. But here are these two very quiet ladies who certainly um, try to, to lead their lives as quietly as possible and who simply were, who were silenced not so much because of what they said, but because what they didn't say. They refused to adopt a certain kind of aesthetic school, which is that of socialist realism and poetry. So this, I think, really, really points to uh, the idea of how revolutionary the word is. And how revolutionary no, the word and is. And no is also an answer. And that no is an answer, and, that, and that I think that's why the, the poetry is often even more striking an example of how revolutionary the word is, because it's even, the dissent is even less explicit and more covert, as in the case of Ahmadiba and Spetsaiba, than in, in prose. Uh, yes? I would like to ask the panelists, uh, is the omission of uh, the right American writers except Updike, uh, is that relevant? Or in other words, discussing the French writers, the English writers, and the Russian writers, uh, is that relevant to what, what the primary discussion is? I, I mentioned Jack London. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Burgess mentioned Mela. Mr. Burgess mentioned Mela. No, I, I, uh, now, one now sees that there is an unfortunate uh, bias in the direction of, uh, of non-American uh, participants. Uh, I don't know whether or not to apologize. That I don't know what an American is. I mean, I, I might be an American tomorrow with a bit of luck. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you want something said about, about this uh, general position of the American writer in terms of revolution, there's a hell of a lot to be said. I don't know who's the best person to say it, but um, the things that I want to say are not altogether favorable to the way American letters are proceeding at the present time. Uh, I think that, uh, for instance, uh, black revolutionary writing, uh, though vigorous, uh, throws away a great deal of the linguistic heritage uh, which should be lavished on the particular themes or theme with which the black writer is concerned. Uh, I think that the, uh, the recent um, elevation of the ghetto dialects into uh, a new tongue called blackspeak is, uh, is, uh, is not merely dangerous, but conceivably sinful. Uh, it is uh, a language which is supposed to be a language of revolution, a language of change, uh, which is nothing more than uh, a sub-dialect which is incapable of presenting the whole man. Uh, I think a lot of these things are being approved in America at the present time because people are frightened of, frightened of, of disapproving. Uh, I think, on the other hand, that a writer like um, like Mailer, who does use the, the whole range of the English tongue, uh, is the kind of writer who should be cherished, uh, wayward though he is. But one doesn't look to him, apparently, for the tones of revolution. One looks to it, for it, uh, to people like Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, one looks uh, for it uh, in uh, a play by Jimmy Baldwin called, uh, I've forgotten the title, uh, Blues for Mr. Charlie. One, 
these things which are not actually exactly pared down to a kind of linguistic minimal, uh, but uh, are merely impoverished, linguistically impoverished, emotionally impoverished, and for this reason are supposed to have a, a very special value because they like nothing that uh, has been seen previously in the Anglo-American tradition. Uh, this kind of uh, revolutionary writing, and there's a lot of it going on in America at the time, is, I think, to be abhorred. Uh, I've made a statement now about American literature. <laughs> Mrs. Yeah, Gray is an American. And yes. would she speak um, for American writing? Please? Not American-born. No, <laughs> still American. Um, I think Philip Roth is a very good example to discuss in this in the, uh, in tonight's discussion. I thought the breath was a rather it was a revolutionary rather revolutionary book. I thought it was a marvelous book. I think uh, a lot of people attacked it because, because of its brevity and nothing else. Um, but I think it's a very interesting example too uh, as a as a personality and as a writer to present tonight because he's a man who makes a very specific point of not only never giving <coughs> interviews, uh, doing uh, TV shows, going to the media, but also never signing political statements, never making an anti-war speech, although he's profoundly anti-war, never giving his name to any one political party or political cause. So in the terms that, uh, in, in such a way that he's often attacked by university students or by people in the so-called peace movement for being an uncommitted quote-unquote writer. I think he's deeply committed, and I think that's where uh, a lot of uh, people's notions of commitment are perhaps false. I think uh, he has a very, uh, uh, I think he's a very committed view of, of American society, or rather his, his, his negative views of American society, his, his criticism of American society, uh, as it comes out in Goodbye Columbus and in Portnoy and in the Breast, uh, reveals a profound commitment to certain American values and over to certain human values, which is much deeper than um, the kind of um, activism that all of us have been indulging in, uh, going to jail, uh, speaking at uh, numerous Roy uh, McGovern rallies, and so on and so forth. So that I, I feel uh, that it's very hard to criticize a writer from in the way that he, that uh, the movement, so-called, has criticized writers in terms of non-committedness. Because I think Roth is as committed as uh, anybody else. Yes. Uh, my name is Michael Manning, and it seems to me that every writer who's who is practicing practicing his profession has as much right to express himself as a citizen on the issues of politics, economics, and everything else that affects him as a citizen, just as people who are mechanics or people who are in other professions have a right as citizens, concerned, interested citizens, to express themselves on the various political and economic issues of the day because they are affected as citizens. Uh, uh, so uh, in my judgment, a uh, writer has as much right to be involved in the issues of the high cost of living, of abortion, of uh, the, the war, the appropriation, the battle of the budget, and everything else, because all these affect him as a citizen, even not as a writer. And, and, and uh, uh, I'd just like to ask this question to the panel. What do they think of Thomas Paine, who wrote those uh, inspiring tracts during the Revolutionary War? Do you think that he served a constructive influence in 
furthering the cause of the American Revolution. I think Mr. Burgess should answer about Mr. Payne because he already, about Tom Payne, you already spoke to him. Uh, well, you see, again, we're, we're up against this question of, uh, of the writer as being two people, and uh, sometimes the particular gift he's supposed to have, the particular aptitude he's supposed to have for using words, is supposed to spill over into the non-professional side of his life. Uh, it's up to him, of course, whether he uses this or not. Many of us feel it would be a shame if he didn't use it. If a letter has to be written to the New York Times, it had better be written by somebody who could write, and write briefly and, uh, and tellingly. Now, as far as Tom Paine is concerned, uh, a writer I admire greatly, still admire, uh, he must have been a very considerable writer because his uh, concerns, his uh, particular commitment, although it was a local one and um, uh, a highly temporary one in that it dealt with a particular point in history, a particular historical movement, nevertheless does get down to these roots of the nature of humankind and the basic rights of humankind. It states these rights uh, most uh, succinctly and most eloquently, and of course pain can still be quoted relevantly uh, in uh, any meeting in which this kind of issue comes up. But this is very, very rare. I mean, there were many, many pamphleteers at this time who did not have this gift of transcending their own period, but Paine had the gift, and of course so did Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, who, uh, whose social contract, although it uh, referred directly to the situation in which France found herself, is still, uh, to use this, uh, uh, this lonely term, a term unqualified with uh, prepositions and, uh, and uh, uh, following now, this term irrelevant, uh, it's, it's relevant today because it does state uh, with admirable rhetoric and admirable succinctness uh, the basic issues of uh, human beings living in societies, uh, issues which have never been fully understood and the difficulties appertaining to these issues, which have never been fully resolved. There's another, there's a word that I'd like to pick up, sir, um, um, from your, your comment, which is, uh, you, you, you use the word right, the, the writer does have a right, but does he have a duty? You see, that's what we're quibbling, quibbling about. Of course he has a right, we all have the right. I'm, what I'm trying to say is this, that it is, um, and I'm, I'm really taking the devil's advocate side, because I've been to jail, I've done all kinds of things which, which, which uh, my, many, some of my fellow writers have not done, but I, I shy away from making the didactic judgment on those of my colleagues who, who prefer not to. Because if we are going to have a pluralistic society, I think it's rather dangerous to think that at a time of crisis, everybody has to do the same thing, except if the crisis becomes really acute and then we have to make a much more normative judgment. I, as a child of the French resistance and who underwent a certain kind of you know, revolution myself uh, and the daughter of a, of a man killed in the resistance, I have profound uh, disdain for those French writers or artists who remain collaborationists. Uh, my family still does not speak to them 30 years afterwards and I think it's just the way it should be. So that I think we have lived through a crisis but it is not grave enough of cri a crisis to say the writer must do this and that. And when the crisis really becomes uh, grave, then I think I probably might part with Mr. Kuczynski and Mr. Burgess and say, yes, he must join uh, uh, great groups in as massive civil disobedience as possible. Yes? Could you speak a little louder? Are you looking at me? <laughs> Can't tell. Uh, I meant an act of writing 
far, in, in a far larger sense than merely political. I thought that an act of commitment, that of writing for an audience whom you don't know, whom you don't meet, and who, who, uh, who somehow will never come in direct contact with you, is philosophical, is social, is moral, is aesthetical, and it's also political. <coughs> it's all of these things in one. You must also remember that a writer's commitment, ideally speaking, is not for to any specific period. Um, I, I have all the rights to believe that perhaps one of my books will be read when I am gone, and when you are gone as well. And somehow one aims not at any specific generation, when, and I speak again only about myself in this case. One aims at the condition, a condition which one thinks is a pressing one, certain aspect of, of, of the life of an individual. And I think this, the very act is all the ingredients at the same time. A writer can stress the situation which he portrays can be more political or less political, more moral or less moral. He may want to enrage the reader, even to the point where the reader rejects the book as unbearable and by the very act of rejecting the work of fiction makes himself better. To reject a book as unbearable, you have to find out what is bearable. And you may have never done it before. I'm delighted with some of the letters of rejection and some of the very rejecting reviews. I feel that they really hit somewhere. Someone had to redefine himself or herself. Clearly, it's a political act. It's political, but it's also all the other things as well. There's one more thing I would like to say. I would not speak to someone who was collaborating with the Nazis either. I would read his books, though. I would make this distinction. Once the writer's life whether he goes up and talks about it or not, again, irrelevant. A writer's life is something very temporary, something which will pass, and it's really subject to the same um, judgment we make on anyone else. In terms of his work, however, it's a different dimension. It goes beyond the, the aspects of his life, beyond his uh, walking sticks, beyond his political views, political parties, people he collaborated with, and so forth, and so forth. I think we find that in Pound. 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 No comment. Oh. <laughs> uh, there's a gentleman right at the back. Excuse me. You, you, you had your hand up before. Would you stand up? No, this is a totally different uh, circumstance. Uh, Mark Twain was uh, working in the tradition, but he was super-adding an element which uh, uh, no English critic, say, such as, uh, such as Matthew Arnold, uh, could be, uh, because of certain prejudices, be uh, expected to accept. Uh, what I'm saying about, um, about what I may term ghetto English is the fact that uh, it is deprived, and this is bad. It's bad that there should be a mode of speech which is deprived deprived of subtlety, deprived of wealth. And instead of our doing something about making this a fitting instrument uh, for the expression of the revolutionary views of a long downtrodden minority, uh, we have a kind of Uncle Thomism, a kind of white Uncle Thomism, an Uncle Thomism among the pundits who says, how charming this is. This is something new. And uh, how well these black writers use it, which is extremely condescending. I much prefer a man like, uh, like, like James Baldwin, who, uh, whose, uh, whose commitment is not in doubt, 
uh, but who brings to his commitment all the wealth he's learnt from a Henry James. Uh, we don't uh, make our point through uh, self-impoverishment. And uh, I feel that the parallel with Mark Twain is, is not a just one at all. Mark Twain was one of the four or five writers living in the last hundred years who used the whole of language. And, and I don't think any Englishman's ever doubted that. Uh, the susceptibilities of odd, prissy-minded um, Americanophobes like uh, Matthew Arnold uh, must not now be taken into consideration. No Englishman worthy of salt, as they say, uh, ever does more than idolize Mark Twain as somebody who's added to the language. It's when the language is taken away from and is regarded as a good thing that our hackles tend to rise, whether we're Americans or English. Yes? No, if there's a certain uh, diffidence on the part of some, it's, it's because we haven't read it in the original, and, uh, and Solzhenitsyn's translations are notoriously bad. Uh, I felt when I read the book that this could not be what Solzhenitsyn had written. Yes? I think I think that's not so. I think that that uh, the jail population is extremely mixed. Uh, Norman Mailer has been in. Uh, Robert Lowell, Dwight MacDonald, uh, historians, uh, uh, poets, a great many poets. I mean, I think uh, Wilbur and Orr. I mean, the poets have been particularly extraordinary, much more extraordinary. And the journalists, at the contrary, have been very shy about it because there is this myth of journalistic objectivity. And uh, I, as a journalist, uh, uh, feel that very very few of us have. Uh, 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 wavered away from that from that myth of objectivity and taken that step, and it's particularly the creative writers and particularly the poets who have who have, who have gone into civil disobedience. Definitely. I think we've all been in jail here, have we? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I might ask for a rather short time. Well, I was in jail in Spain for saying Frank West and Cabrón are worth that effect. Uh, that's going back a few years. No, Thoreau only um, spent one night. Oh, I, I spent more than that. I could, it's a long story. Uh, I spent more than that. But uh, I think well, what one can say now without fancy is that all intellectuals must sooner or later expect to go to jail. And uh, probably the time is coming, or the day of the long night, even here, is coming. And, uh, th well, this raises a long and interesting uh, subject, which is perhaps nothing to do with this uh, particular question under discussion, but uh, how we should prepare ourselves for jail. Uh, how, uh, how, in fact, the particular trade we practice uh, is the, the, the best possible preparation for a long period of uh, solitary confinement without pen, pencil, or anything else. Um, uh, now, the, the, the fact is that uh, throughout history, uh, it has not been the journalists who have gone to jail, it has been the writers who have gone to jail. Uh, there's a long, long history of this. And um, I, I need an instance. I, I need an instance of the fact that uh, Cervantes was a galley slave, for instance, or that uh, Bunyan was in prison or that Jack Wilkes was in jail, and so it goes on forever. 
Uh, why are these people in jail and not the journalists? Because it is these people who tell the truth. You say the journalists tell the truth. Yes, they, they tell a particular kind of truth, but it's, um, it's again, uh, not a permanent truth, a temporary truth, whereas uh, the, the real danger of poets and writers is that they eloquently can put forward some fundamental truth uh, which strikes at the very root of whatever reactionary ideology uh, happens to be in favour or in power. And I think, I, I think every one of us who practices the craft of writing, even a Parnassian like myself, is ready to go to jail uh, because he does not propose to have his voice stilled. Not about any particular issue, whether, whether uh, Nixon is a good man or not, but whether these fundamental rights uh, have to be maintained against all odds. And I think the time is coming for a lot of us when uh, we have to make the big stand. A lot of us are temporizing a little too much, not only in Europe, but also in America, and it is the writer's job uh, because he is committed to saying what he sees, but not to temporize in a particular political situation. Yes? Get by, well, I've said it. Okay, well, can you, can you tell me why it's invalid? But look, we're all in this position. I mean, there are probably, probably the majority of people sitting here, whether white or black, have had English imposed upon them as a second language, which eventually became a first. It's uh, true of my own race. Uh, I'm not an Englishman, primarily. I'm primarily an Irishman. My own Celtic inheritance has disappeared. I had to learn the language of the conqueror. Uh, having been given this language, we have to use it, if need be, against the conqueror. Uh, in other words, in fighting the oppressor, we must not use lesser weapons than he uses. Hmm? Why should the oppression continue? Of the oppressor's language continue? Yeah. Well, only because the oppressor's language happens to be the language of the particular, uh, particular society we're living in. Uh, the, it, it is possible for, uh, for a black American to learn one of the, uh, uh, one of the languages of Africa, uh, preferably a West Coast. Yeah probably a West Coast language rather than an East Coast. Most people, for some reason, are learning an East Coast language, although there's no evidence that the black population in this country derives from the East Coast rather than the West Coast. Uh, this can be done, uh, but, it, has to, but it, it can only be valid in a particular society, which is this is a common medium. Uh, if we happen to be using the white man's language, if you happen to be using it, but you have to use a language that he, not like myself, I'm not suggesting this at all, but I am suggesting that the language itself is uh, a huge treasury uh, to which have contributed many people who are not white, uh, many people who are not English, people who have learnt the language, Joseph Conrad was a Pole, I didn't say more. Uh, Poles learn the language, often use it better than Englishmen. The, the language is a language which must be uh, freed, cleansed of its uh, racial connotations. It's just a language we happen to have, we must use it as fully as we can uh, to uh, further our own purpose, whether it be political, social or what. I don't think there's anything wrong in saying that. I mean, this is, the, this is very much on the side of the oppressed, not on the side of the oppressor. Uh, 
This lady was next. Well, that I accept, as long as it's a temporary condition, but it's being presented more and more as a permanent one. Uh, the, you, I think you were next. Well, this is what we want. This is precisely what I'm saying, uh, that the, the glory of the language, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that uh, to it have uh, flowed so many tributaries, uh, that uh, the, uh, when, um, when a man like uh, Vladimir Nabokov, whose native language is Russian, starts to use English, he brings special tones to it, special qualities. Yeah, he read French first. He, re he read English uh, I thought it was French he read first. Nevertheless, I mean, he thinks in Russian. I was thinking in Russian. I, I don't know. But uh, the point is that this is... Uh, this is richness. When, look, we have a vast literature in West Africa. Uh, writers like uh, Amos Utwala, uh, who have brought the, uh, the rhythms and tones, and uh, for that matter, even the, um, even the vocabulary of a native African dialect to English with admirable results. The language has become enriched. Uh, this is what we're after. We're not to, I'm not, I, I, I say a simple word, I say impoverishment of any kind has to be fought against, including impoverishment of language. Yes. I came late, but I've heard a good deal about novelists and a little about journalists. Uh, I wonder if one of you cared to comment on contemporary poets. And I have in mind that my brother Bly, who speaks to certainly a much smaller audience than many novelists, and that you are a candidate, I think, for uh, pure consciousness revolution in the future, but I guess you are finding social conditions for
if I can respond to it in a very general fashion, you probably realize that both fiction and poetry are not in the mainstream of American life. Um, I might, for those of you who are not very familiar with it, I might recall the Gallup poll of 1969, it's only four years ago, where a question was asked, when, if ever, have you read any book all the way through other than textbook or a Bible? And the answer was 58%. No, never. Now, you have in front of you, therefore, a very peculiar panel. You have in front of you uh, four individuals with, with the work of whom 58% of this country have nothing to do with. Indeed, we are a group of freaks. But for that matter, you are not better off either. You came to see us. <laughs> and, and so um, this, is, this is the predicament, both of a fictional imagination and even more so of a poetic one. Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. Where did I go to school? I went to school in England. I'm sorry, I, I may be stupid. I probably, I don't, I don't understand. There's a gulf between us. Uh, now, what have I done? Now, let's start again. What have I done wrong? I've done something wrong. I know that. What have I done wrong? I was brought up in England. I was brought up in a Catholic school in England, right? Brought up by Irishmen in England. I learned to read and write there, yes. Now, what, where do we go from there? Well, the public schools are pretty bad in England, too, you know. It just happened that uh, I was not allowed to go to a public school because uh, I had to go to a Catholic school, uh, which... Uh, I don't regard myself as such. I don't regard myself as such at all. I regard myself as abysmally ignorant. I'm not trying to make any pretensions whatsoever. But uh, for God's sake, don't start running the New York school system down uh, all, all that much. I mean, see the, see the school system for the rest of the world first. There's plenty of education going on in New York. We get it, I, I, I get this, this whine of the underdog, the colonial underdog coming up again. God knows where it comes from. Uh, uh, yes, the gentleman right at the back.
I don't think we dismissed style. Uh, it was suggested earlier that uh, style itself may be a revolutionary thing. I, th I think your reference to Orwell is, uh, is highly relevant to the general discussion, extremely valuable. Uh, there was a man who uh, forged a style, in a sense, forged a style, deliberately shed a uh, lot of the grandiloquence that was available to him, uh, shared the kind of Cyril Connolly uh, Etonianisms which uh, Orwell himself inherited, uh, forging a, a sharp, extremely sharp instrument for a particular job. Uh, revolutionary style, yes, revolutionary style. But is it not possible also to regard the style of Finnegan's Wake as a revolutionary style? The style of Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, which uh, is very unlike Orwell's and to many people is unintelligible, isn't it? It's not possible to regard this as a revolutionary style in that it uh, provides an instrument again uh, for opening up areas of the mind uh, not uh, normally dealt with by writers. Uh, this is not an answer, is it? Well, your statement was not a question. Yes, true, the revolutionary style is different, but uh, the revolutionary style can sometimes uh, come about because of, the, uh, uh, because, of because of the presence of a social or political revolution which sharpens the brain, uh, which makes uh, many long-accepted uh, shibboleths no longer accepted, and makes people search for new images and new words. Yes, I accept that. Uh, I think we've come more or less to an end. Are there any more? There's one more question, perhaps. No, I think it's time to thank our panelists very much indeed, and I think it's been a very I No, I used to teach I used to teach Russian, but I'm not sure. But you do know it because I used to read it. I don't read it now. That's why I that's why I don't I won't say anything I won't say anything about Uh, not with you. Uh, how are you off? I'm half Russian. Oh, you're right. Yes, but I'm my own. No, it's... No, but I... I was Well, I was looking for the dialect. Uh, 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 the state must not mess around with people's minds, that's all. I mean, uh, we must have the capacity of choice ethical area, and that uh, one should prevent persons from being able to do evil, then uh, can't do good either, because you don't have to Good in both of them is not good at all. Good is something you choose. No, you've got to choose evil. You've got to be able to choose evil. It's very catty, isn't it?
Judeo-Christian. Oh, the film is itself. The film is itself. The film is its own work of art and, uh, you know, uh, function, function in its own medium. It sets up the being, I said, but he said, the way I said, left out of account But unfortunately, people come to the doctor to see the film. It's the, the, the only book that my people read and the, the title of it. So. What are you doing? 